Welcome to Trial Tested, a podcast by the American College of Trial Lawyers, an enlightening discussion about life and law created to elevate and inspire trial attorneys. My name is Amy Gunn, and I will be your host for today's episode. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the American College of Trial Lawyers podcast, Trial Tested. I am Amy Gunn, a fellow from St. Louis, and today I have the privilege of spending some time with attorney Boma Alibi. Boma is a trial lawyer based in Nigeria, practicing in commercial and criminal law. She did her secondary education at Federal Government Girls College, River State University of Science and Technology for her LLB, and King's College in London for her LLM. She was a council member of the board of the Royal Commonwealth Society and chairwoman of the Association of Women Solicitors in England and Wales between 2005 and 2006. She served as president of the Commonwealth Lawyers Association from 2011 to 2013 as the first and only woman in its history to date. She was elevated to the rank of Senior Advocate of Nigeria in December of 2020 and is currently a senior partner of Primera Africa Legal, where she leads the corporate governance and compliance practice. Hello, Boma. So happy to meet you and am so thankful for you joining us here in Rome at our conference. How are you? I'm very well, thank you, Amy, and thanks for inviting me. It is our pleasure. Would you mind starting with giving us a little bit of your background? Certainly. Well, I was born in Nigeria in the 60s, went to school in Nigeria. All of my early education was in Port Harcourt, which is in the southern part of the country. Primary school, secondary school, university, and then I came to Lagos for Nigerian law school. So we all come to one national law school, and we did in my time, before we're called to the bar as solicitors and advocates of the Nigerian Supreme Court. After that, I went to England to do a master's. Nigeria was under a military dictatorship at the time, and I didn't want to go back to a country where my constitution was suspended. So after the master's, I stayed back in England and worked as a solicitor for a period of time, but always with my eye on Nigeria, always looking forward to a time when my country would return to democracy and I could return to do my bit. And eventually that happened in 1999. As soon as I could, I upped sticks and moved back to Lagos. And I am an accidental trial lawyer. (laughs) How so? In the sense that my primary background is actually as a solicitor, dealing with transactions and those sorts of things. And that's mostly what I did in England. On returning to Nigeria, the paucity of help for those who are caught up in the criminal justice system, purely because the government couldn't fund the Legal Aid Council properly, meant that we had to set up a pro bono department in our firm to try and help them. And that's when I started dealing with advocacy, both in defense and later on even prosecuting because the shortage of lawyers and infrastructure was on both sides. So, for instance, my colleague and friend was appointed the attorney general of a state. And I called him to say, oh, congratulations. And how can I help you, says Boma? Thank you for asking. I have 51 lawyers in my entire justice department. Oh, my goodness. And I have over a thousand cases all awaiting trial in detention, not to talk of the ones who are not in detention. They are detained awaiting trial. So if I can give you a fiat or two or more to help prosecute these cases. So one way or the other, they know if they're guilty, yes, they serve. 
If they're not, let them get on with their lives. But this holding them in limbo is just not justice. And I said, of course, I made time and I got involved. I can see you in London practicing as a solicitor, enjoying that type of practice. But you mentioned you always had your eye on returning home. Is that something that you went to England to go to school and to start your career, but you were always going to come home? Oh, yes. In fact, my entire career in England was with a focus on Nigeria. So I didn't go to a mainstream magic circle firm. I worked closely with the Nigeria High Commission. It meant that I didn't earn as much, but that's never been my guiding principle in the first place. It's all about doing something that gives you satisfaction and makes you feel that you're making an impact. That's what drives me. And therefore, that's how I worked in England. I eventually set up my own law firm in London Bridge. And again, that was about women in the profession and the fact that we couldn't work flexi. Mm. You know, I had a child and I didn't understand why I had to work nine to five. So long as I delivered on the work that was assigned to me. We're not in the industrial ages where we have to switch on machines. Right. <laughs> it's a knowledge-based profession. And I should be trusted as an adult and a professional to basically come to work after I've dropped my child off at school, see my clients, go back home, pick the child, help him or her with their homework, then carry on with my work around that and still deliver. It's not part-time working, it's flexi-working. And at the time, it was not known or accepted. And therefore, I set up my own space where we could all work flexi, both men and women in the profession. And why does that seem like such a revolutionary idea? <laughs> I have no idea. <laughs> but it is, it's wonderful. And I think we could all take a little bit of a lesson from that, certainly. The flexibility, it really does go directly to satisfaction with mm -hmm. your career. Mm -hmm. So when you moved back to Nigeria, mm -hmm. I've heard you say that you had a willingness and a desire to serve your country, to serve the citizens. Yes. Did you have a plan specifically about what type of law you wanted to practice in Nigeria or was it where the need was the most? Well, I'm a commercial lawyer, first and foremost, and that's my bread and butter. And that's what I do for a living. My pro bono work is where I get involved in criminal trials and so on. And that's been quite interesting, very satisfying, whether it's be prosecuting or defending. On the defense side, because we have a limited budget, it's put aside from our income, and there's only so much we can do, we only deal with death penalty cases mm -hmm. on appeal. And we limit ourselves to that section because it's life and death and they generally have not had good representation at trial court level to begin with. Okay, let me just stop for a second. People who have been arrested and on trial in a death penalty case go through that trial with no representation. They have representation, but not good representation because it's usually the Legal Aid Council, yes. which is poorly funded. They usually have a bunch of rookies that's what we call youth coppers. They've just come out of law school. Yes. And they handed a file. This is somebody's life. Some of those cases I've seen on trial, there have been 30 different lawyers oh representing them at the trial. So it's clearly one passing one file to the other. 
no one really taking the time to look at the evidence properly, not having the experience. And the court is forced to proceed so long as there's representation, regardless of how poor it is. And that's the case. It's just the fact in my jurisdiction. So a lot of those death penalty cases, we review the trial notes to see what actually happened. The gaps are glaring because of the lack of experience of the defense lawyers and the fact that they are changed so often. Nigeria, your country had a new constitution in 1999. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Does that constitution allow for right to trials in death penalty cases? That constitution says you are entitled to representation. And yes, they will have to be represented before the court can proceed. That in itself creates an injustice because if a legal aid counsel cannot fund sufficient lawyers to represent, you sit in custody awaiting trial. And so we have all the cases which I'll share with you here, and I'm only sharing three of them. The defendants have all been, on average, in custody awaiting trial for between five to eight years. And that is before trial? That's before trial. Could you share one of those cases with me? Certainly. One of the cases I'm going to talk about is a case involving a little girl. This, actually, I prosecuted on the fiat of the Attorney General of the state, the conversation I just mentioned to you with a friend of mine. And this child was eight years old. When returning from school with her older sister and friend walking ahead, because they're all sort of strolling back from school. Older sister and friend are walking ahead. Child is sort of lagging behind. A random man, about 30 years of age, summons the child and sends on an errand. Go and return this Coke bottle to the street vendor and bring back my change, that small change from buying a drink. Now, Nigerian children are taught, and I think it's wrong that I keep advocating on that basis now, to be very respectful of elders, never speak back, do as you're told. So the child just naturally, is an elder person, did as she was told, took the Coke bottle, came back with the change. And the chap seized this child, ran behind the house, and raped the child. She was eight years old. So in the course of this, the older sister and friend realized, oh, where is she? We can't find her. So they started yelling her name. He hears the name. Is that your name? She nods because he's got his hand over her mouth. He then jumps up and runs in the other direction, and the child comes out the bush. Mm. Long story short, fast forward two years later, this girl is 10 years old. That's when it comes to trial. That in itself is wrong mm-hmm. because that child should not have to deal with this trauma for another two years before she can testify. Absolutely. And there was no support whatsoever for this child. No prepping, nothing, no protection because the system infrastructure is just not there. This is why I talked about trials as a pun. And I had to build the support around my little witness in order to make it possible for her to give her testimony. I went to pick her because she and her parents had moved from that community because they're stigmatized. Right. She moved to a different state. I had to find her, bring her. She sat on my lap all the way from there to the courthouse. We got there about an hour and a half early because I wanted to make her comfortable in the room. We role-played, put her in the witness stand, made her sit on the judges. I took pictures with my wig and gown put it on her head, just to make her comfortable in the room. I shouldn't have to do that. There should be support for that to happen. She was cross-examined like an adult. Oh, 
And there was nothing the judge could do about it because the rules haven't changed yet to protect child and vulnerable witnesses, which is what you must have in the States, which is certainly what they have in England. You know, the judge took his wig off to make her more comfortable. When the accused person walked into that room, the child froze. You could see instant body reaction. She recognized the child. She froze. The judge had to say to her, look, don't look at anyone else. Look at me. Think of me as uncle. Mm. Pulled his chair close and made her face him and away from the courtroom in order for her to be able to give her testimony. She shouldn't have had to be in the same room with that rapist. Correct. That's the trials in Nigeria that I'm talking about. Cross-examination. She was asked to define rape, a 10-year-old. She was asked questions, long, complex questions. I had to keep jumping up and saying, no, you can't. She's only 10. Right. You ask questions that a primary school child can understand. Don't use big words. And luckily, the court was sympathetic and would ask them to rephrase and simplify the questions. Again, we didn't need to have done that. Trials in Nigeria. Now, eventually, she asked her, do you have a boyfriend? The child says, yes. She stops there. The implication, of course, is the adult implication of boyfriend. Child's understanding is entirely different. Right. So in re-examination, I had to ask her, your boyfriend, how old is he? He's her younger brother's friend. He's seven years old. So that's just one. That trial was a bench trial, mm-hmm. tried by the judge. Mm-hmm. And I was reading that there are no jury trials, correct? Mm-hmm. None. And in that case, it sounds like you did have a sympathetic judge. Mm-hmm. Was there a conviction? Yes, there was. To quote the judge, he said, you are scum, you do not belong in human society. And if you had a previous conviction, I would have given you a life sentence. But because you haven't, I cannot. So the maximum he could give was 25 years with hard labor, and he did. And maximum 25 years, that's a matter of law? Yes, and it's state by state. Okay. So you started out saying that even waiting two years for that trial is problematic, not only for the alleged criminal, but particularly for the victim. Precisely. Two years in the life of an eight-year-old is like 20 years. Children do not remember the way adults remember. Mm-mm. I mean, I have a child and she'll see this auntie today and in six months' time, she'll say, oh, no, I don't remember. She doesn't remember. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and she's had to sort of relieve all of this that happened two years ago. She should have been able to deal with it and move on. So what can be done other than your good work and your empathy to know the best thing to do for that child? What is being done to remedy what you're pointing out? Well, again, and this is all part of why I feel it's so important that I'm in Nigeria and doing what I can. Yes. So I have engaged with the Nigerian Association of Women Judges. Now Jane is the acronym National Association of Women Judges of Nigeria. At their last workshop, I had resource persons, Professor Penny Cooper from England, who happens to be a friend of mine, thankfully. That's handy. Yes, and Penny put together other lawyers who work in this area of children and vulnerable witnesses from, I think she was from New Zealand and then from the Caribs, just to show my jurisdiction what's going on in other jurisdictions and how we can make it better for children and vulnerable witnesses. The judges' workshop, this was very well received, and they set up a committee with 
the office of the vice president, because there was a presentation from the office of the vice president, who incidentally happens to be a lawyer, which is a good thing. We have a National Assembly Judicial Committee. We got a representative from that committee. And right now, work is ongoing to amend legislation to ensure that children and vulnerable witnesses are better protected when they have to give evidence and, you know, they're caught up in the court system. Are there rules, civil rules, criminal rules that are outside of legislation that could help regulate this? Or does it have yes, to be legislation? Yes, yes. And some states are ahead of the others. So Lagos State, for instance, where I practice, the rules have made it possible to protect children and vulnerable witnesses. And the state legislation, because you can do this at state level, but I just thought, there's 36 states, let's come from the national and make it work across the board, because it's the same amount of work in advocacy and everything else I'd have to do on a state-by-state level. That's why I went for the national approach. But Lagos State is well ahead of the other states, Children and vulnerable witnesses are treated more like they would be treated in your jurisdiction or in England, and they will take their testimony via video and so on and make sure they're not put in the same room as the aggressors. So it sounds like there's not hesitation or pushback from any of the judges that you spoke to. It's more a matter of just being aware of it. Not just being aware, it's the resources. Okay. Resources to the justice system. Because if you think about it, this is a country where clean water is still not available to citizens, a number of citizens. So what are they going to prioritize in terms of their very finite resources? Certainly not the justice system. That's the challenge. The judges know what they want, what should happen. And we know what we want and what should be happening. The government is not prioritizing our sector because they've got other priorities in terms of funding. And it's not peculiar to Nigeria. Lawyers, barristers in England have been going on strike for the same reason, because legal aid pays them so little that they're being paid below minimum wage. And so governments do not generally prioritize the justice system, except they really are pushed to do so. That's the main problem. And you mentioned detention is a huge problem, and I can only imagine that's been worse with COVID. Yes. Are you working similarly, trying to get legislation to reduce the time frame within which criminals or alleged criminals are tried? Is there an effort that way too? Not at the moment, certainly not for me, because of my understanding of the system. The vulnerable witnesses and child witnesses is a front burner issue. The length of time in detention, they're all awaiting trial. Some are innocent, some are guilty. Yes. I understand the system well, and I know why judges remand them into custody. It's because they can disappear, and then you will not be able to find them and hold them accountable for what they've done. Right. So if we can improve the justice system, get more judges, more courtrooms, more lawyers employed in the Ministry of Justice, more funding that way, the cases will move faster. And then those who are guilty will not disappear. And those who are not will get released faster. There just seems like there's quite a bit to do. It's a huge and amount to do. I appreciate the prioritizing of the vulnerable witnesses that appears to be a very important principle of yours. 
What other projects are you working on? They all seem, I'm sure whatever you've chosen is important. What else are you working on? Right now, and this is a passion for me because I engage a lot with the young lawyers. And once I came back to Nigeria, I started a CSR project with the Nigerian Law School, which was like a career day for the lawyers in law school. And that's part of the curriculum in the Nigerian Law School now. I invite colleagues who are in-house as general counsel or in academia or on the bench to just give them a backside. A day in the life of a judge, a day in the life of an in-house counsel working for Chevron or whoever. And what skills you need to develop if this is the way you want to go with your career. So we have that. And invariably, they all connect, not all, a number of them via LinkedIn and so on, and keep in touch. And I realize it's so difficult for them to get placements and to get work because there's no correlation between the number of lawyers we're churning out and the number of jobs available to them. Meanwhile, Nigeria, the average citizen, has no access to lawyers. Mm-hmm. Because most of them don't know lawyers, they don't know how to get to them. We don't have a duty solicitor scheme when they're arrested. And so it's always been a be my bonus about how do I connect this army of unemployed lawyers <laughs> to all these people who need their services, yes. but have no idea how to get them together. So for the past five years, I've been working with some tech chaps and we've developed an app which will connect lawyers to citizens like Uber. Oh my goodness. <laughs> This is wonderful. (laughs) So that's about to launch. I think it's launching next month. (laughs) Oh, my goodness. So, for example, if someone needs a lawyer for a family matter, you would be able to do that. Or is it criminal or is it all? Yes, 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 potentially. But the primary target for me was police harassment on the streets and other government agencies. They profile young people between sort of the ages of 18 and 35, particularly the young men, but also girls, and extort bribes from them on trumped up whatever, just extortion, knowing fully well they've done nothing. You have dreadlocks like I do. Aha, you must be computer con person or something or the other. But it's rampant. It led to protests on the streets of Nigeria last year, which they called NSARS, SARS being a division of the National Police for armed robbery and so on. And they were so brutal that the youngsters came out on national protests and SARS. Now we've done our homework, we've taken from various data gathering and R&D. We know that on average, they're extorting per incident the equivalent of maybe $50 from these young people. It's a lot of money in Nigeria because the Naira equivalent is quite substantial. So if a young lawyer can be paid that $50, rather than paying extortionate to the policeman, that's a better way of dealing with it. It also stops impunity because over time, when they realize that you can call a lawyer like and call an Uber, they won't even bother. So it's going to hopefully deal with three heads. One, give some livelihood and work to the young lawyers. Two, citizens are able to enforce their rights. And three, stop the impunity. What is the app called? It's Apt Response. Apt Response. (laughs) Nice. (laughs) (laughs) And it launches when? Next month? Yes. Well, good luck with that. Thank you. I would love to hear how that goes because it seems if it goes well and is productive and efficient, you could guide it to other areas. Yes, absolutely. 
Now, the lawyers that are signing up for this, are they the folks that you've met yes. at these career fairs? So we fairs? just recently had a national annual general conference of the bar, which is something we have once a year last week in August. And a large number of lawyers come along. So that's where we sort of tried it out. And the focus is zero to 10 years post-call. Beyond that, you should be better established and not really needing to do this sort of work. And I think we registered over 4,000 lawyers. Oh, my gracious. Already. That's wonderful. And we haven't launched. Right. And as soon as you do, you could have participants who can explain exactly. what happened and what they learned. And that's only going to take off, I would yeah, think. Yeah. So what made you think of that? Well, Uber. Yeah. And the fact that you can just hail a cab wherever you are. And I'm thinking, why can't you just get a lawyer from wherever you are and just find the nearest lawyer to your location in a time of an emergency? Mm-hmm. And also, it stops us sitting in Judith Lister's rooms just waiting you can be doing something else. Okay, so it sounds like young man is walking down the street, mm-hmm. is approached by a police officer, and it's basically a shakedown and extortion. Mm-hmm. The young man pulls out his phone and hits the app. So we have an emergency button because the first thing the Nigerian police will do is take away your phone because they know you're going to try and call for help. Okay. We want to be able to hit the button and not have to talk right. to anybody. And then the locator's on, it says where you are, and someone comes along. Wow. I really am interested. It just seems... This is why it's so exciting being in Nigeria. Because you can actually literally make a difference. Yes. In a way that you can't in other places where it's all well established. So it's either, you know, the cup is half full or half empty. I always look at it as cups half full. Because I'm here, I'm able to make this difference. I could be living a comfortable life in London, sitting in my garden. So why? Why do you do this? Because of that precisely the opportunity to impact positively in this way. I know, but a lot of people don't choose to put themselves out there like that. A lot of people would choose to stay in London. So there's got to be more to it. That's just boring. Yeah. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Now we're getting to it. It's exciting. Yes. Yes. It is. It is exciting to sort of see an issue and think, how can I solve this? And how can I get people the resources to solve this? And the resources are not always about, you know, financial resources. It's almost more potentially the people with the influence to make that difference. And to think that little Fatia, that's what we're calling Fatia's law. Little Fatia has caused us to come together. I brought this to the attention of the female judges at their conference. And they were all 100% behind it because they've seen it in their courtrooms the vice president's office, the National Assembly, from one little girl in Ibadan, Oyo State. And then thankfully, I had the ability to reach all of those institutional supporters, identify them, first of all, as the appropriate institutions to go to, and then get them together to begin to work on this. So that is as successful as it is because you put the time and effort into it And also, it sounds like throughout your entire career, you've built connections. Absolutely. And you understand the importance of people. And sometimes it just takes a special brain to know how people are connected. Mm -hmm. And do you like that part too? I love it. But that was accidental. Okay. I like people. 
I enjoy talking to people, hearing their stories, having conversations, looking at people. When I was in London, I used to people watch just because I did. It was a hobby. I'd jump on a red bus and go from one end to the other and look at other people and make up stories about their backgrounds and where they came from. <laughs> so that's why it was accidental. It wasn't a cultivated thing. And then I just realized my circle of friends and acquaintances just got wider and wider to the point where if I needed to talk to somebody about something, oh gosh, yes, this person might be able to tell me something about this. And they will then say, well, I can't, but so and so can. And then I realized the value of connections and relationships. Right. But like I said, accidentally. You were the first female president of the Commonwealth Lawyers Association. Mm -hmm. Tell us what the Commonwealth Lawyers Association is. So the Commonwealth Lawyers Association is an association of lawyers and institutions that look after lawyers from the 54 Commonwealth countries, which were part of the old empire. We're across six, seven continents, because from the West Indies to Africa to India, Hong Kong, and so on. Of course, Australia, New Zealand as well. What do we have in common? The fact that we all practice common law and the lawyers came together with that in mind. And post-independence, the number of the common law countries that make up the Commonwealth have had their challenges with democracy and the rule of law. So that's a central theme in the work we do in the CLA. Now, Nigeria being an example. So I was living as a teenager and in my university days under military dictatorship in Nigeria. I do not believe that your uniform should be a cause or a right for you to oppress me. It should be something that says you protect me. Under military dictatorship, once they're in uniform, they ride roughshod over the citizens. Now, I happen to be one of those that drove to school. Young student, 18, 19, 20, 21, driving to school and back. And I had regular run-ins with these chaps mm. because they'll set up roadblocks and want to extort. And I'm not giving you a dime. <laughs> oh, what? Take me to the station. Fine. <laughs> Did that happen? Of course. I went regularly. So after a while, they just decided, you know, when they see me on my car, they just let me go because wow. there's no point. But those were the sorts of things I grew up facing as a young person going to university under a military dictatorship. And so when I moved to England, that association was one I was keen to join because I wanted to help with the work of establishing the rule of law in these countries, including, of course, my country. Of course. So that's what caused me to get involved and get interested. Somehow, you know how it is, the more you do, the more you're given to do. Yes, ma'am. <laughs> Very familiar. I can see you're serving <laughs> on a committee and as a vice chair, and that's what happens. So you might have a committee of 20. There are three who are willing to do the work and 17 who just won the title. I like to do the work. Yes. I don't give a toss about the title. Yeah. But that's how I ended up being the president. And was that a stair step? So were you in leadership for a number of years before the yes, presidency? Yes, I was. I was on the Exco for a number of years. And we have an election for the vice president, not for the president, which is a good thing. There's continuity and you work with the policies from the get-go before you continue to lead and so on. So election for the vice president which meant automatically 
once the tenure of the president's over, you become the president. And was that an opportunity? It seems like to me you love your opportunities. Yes, I do. You I seek had, them. I do. And I had a particular bee in my bonnet, which I felt I was the only acceptable face to advocate this. And this is the fact that in most of the common law or commonwealth, whichever one you choose, countries, including Nigeria, homosexuality is criminalized. And most have death penalties. And I think it is wrong. The state should not enter into people's bedrooms and their private lives. It's not your business. Correct. Good. So if you came along to Nigeria and said that, so she's bringing her Western values. Mm -hmm. But I am not Western. I'm Black. I'm Nigerian. I'm the best person to advocate this. And so that was my big thing when I became president in advocating this in the countries where they would otherwise not hear it because they would be seeing a Western face and a Western cultural voice. And my advocacy was quite simple. Okay, you say it's morally wrong. That's not a problem. That's your opinion. But if they're offending God, let God deal with it. Right. <laughs> okay. Not really your concern. Not your concern. So that was my message. I'm not going to argue with your morality, but that's God's business, not yours. And how did that manifest itself? That was not something they could argue about. Sure. Did that become a tenant of the I got association? Some very, well, CLA, it's always been a central tenant of the CLA. But being able to sort of push it in those jurisdictions was something I knew I could do better, better in the sense of it being more accepted from me. And I did. And it wasn't just in Nigeria, it was in all Uganda, you name it. And it's not about publicly speaking on TV. You get the news flash and that would be that. But it's about talking to the influential individuals in the institutions who, once they are personally persuaded, can make the difference. That's how I work, because I want to achieve results. We held our conference in Cape Town. We had 22 countries with a head of government represented. And I had the opportunity to have one-on-one -on -one conversations as the president of the Commonwealth. And you come with a certain authority in that position, obviously. Mm -hmm. What was the effect of that term and that goal of your term? Did you see minds being changed? I Did saw you see minds being, being changed? changed. I saw minds being changed. I saw people. I mean, I had responses where, frankly, I was told this is beyond my level of courage mm. because oh, I know my jurisdiction. They will not listen. So at least there's an admission. Yes, Boma, you're right but I'm not about to bail this cat. I can see that, but it has to start somewhere. So now that person, even if the response was, it's just not time or not right for my particular jurisdiction, if you've really influenced that person, which I'm sure you did, they're still thinking it. I'm hoping so. Yeah. As far as I'm concerned, the fact that I even made that admission is in itself a success. Exactly. Because it means that you're not entrenched in the where you were previously. And eventually they find the right setting, the right audience, and can become an advocate like you. Without your advocacy in that area, it's not on anybody's minds. Mm -hmm. I want to ask, because our audience is largely trial attorneys, I want to ask your opinion about judge-tried cases and jury-tried cases. And I'd seen some articles about the idea of trying to get jury trials ensconced 
in Nigeria. What are your thoughts on that? I don't think it's a good idea for Nigeria because the culture is different from the culture that would bring out a fair jury. We are culturally mediation-oriented, and that's how Nigerians have settled their disputes for centuries. This whole idea of someone being on right and the other person being wrong is alien. I see. It is something that came with the British legal system. So you find that it must be give and take culturally. Yes, he's done this, but you should also give him something. And that mindset is not the mindset for a jury. So you believe it would be hard for a number of people, 6, 8, 10, 12, to come to a conclusion? Yes, because I get it all the time. So you want to insist on a minimum standard on one thing or the other. You've given me a word on this. You've failed on it. These are the consequences. You will have to bear them. And I'm sorry is the response. And everyone thinks, well, he said sorry, Boma. Why are you being so... Oh, my... (laughs) All you have to do is apologize. I see. So sitting in judgment is the difficult thing that you would think people would just have a hard time. They would have a hard time because they just think I'm a witch. I'm a Western witch. Oh, my goodness. (laughs) (laughs) Because I insist on, you know, what choices and actions have consequences. And you must, in that sense, I'm more Westernized than Nigerian. A lot of people think I'm just too hard in the way I approach things which tells me that culturally it'll be difficult do you for think, the jury. Aside from the shortage of judges, do you have a great deal of confidence in the judges before which you appear? Oh, yes. And I say this all the time. Judges have been given a bad name in order to hang them. And I blame the bar, quite frankly. My commercial cases, we send out our first letter of engagement once you've given us instructions. These are your instructions. This is our advice. This is a strategy. This is what it's going to cost you in case you have any complaints. This is who you talk to. The usual. And we will tell you, this is a prognosis. Chances of success, less than 50%. Maybe you want to settle this. Some will make a commercial decision to carry on. Because the delay in the court system will work in their favor. Mm, yes, I Even understand though they know that. that the eventual outcome is that they lose. But you've been told. In other cases, we say, well, chances of success, high. Go ahead and pursue your claim or defend your claim. Now, at that point, we do not know which court we're going to be assigned to. We have no idea what judge it is. So it's courts one, court nine, court 13. That's how I refer to my courts. And yet the outcome is what I've predicted based on the evidence before the court in 90% of the cases. That tells me that the judges are making the decision based on the evidence before them. There are a number, small, very small number of judges who have a bad reputation amongst their colleagues, and for good reason. But what the bar does, and it's wrong, and I have told them so, because I'm also a bar leader, Mm -hmm. is generally they'll take on a bad case tell you, oh, it's in the hands of the courts. So they don't give you this prognosis that I do based on the law because they want to earn the money. And then it goes against you. Well, this judge, who knows what went on behind the scene? I see. So instead of owning, I guess, if you will, the outcome, That's right. they just blame it on a corrupt judge. That's right. I see. And because the litigant is ignorant of the law mm-hmm. and relying on you. Yeah. Well, I'm just trying to summarize because I think it really does come down to your commitment and your advocacy to pick something 
and go for it. I mean, the courage that you have, I find really incredible. I know you're shaking your head. I can see you're shaking your head, but please accept this because we all find things in our lives that we know are wrong, but we have to make a choice every time about whether to right that wrong or even take steps to right that wrong or do we walk away? Do we stay in London? And the answer is no. <laughs> do what Boma did. I've really enjoyed our conversation. I'm looking at my notes. I have so many other things that I'd love to speak to you about. You have so many projects that are just remarkable in their scope. And I had done, as I said, some reading about your projects and your history, and it is inspiring. And I know you are a humble person, I can tell, but please accept my gratitude for what you're doing and for sharing not only with our college and our presentation here, but with our episode here today. So thank you so much. My pleasure. Thank you, Amy. Thank you for listening to Trial Tested. Our next episode drops on Thursday, so please subscribe now and hear every inspiring episode.